came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday, the 5th of October, 2017. Each fortnight, we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And this week, our special guest is Dr. Rebecca Allen from the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky, and I'll be giving a brief news roundup as usual. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Brendan. Today we are speaking with astronomer Dr. Rebecca Allen. She's from the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne. And originally she's from Georgia in the US and did her first degree at the University of Georgia. She went on to do her master's at the University of California, Riverside, and then moved to Australia to complete her doctorate at the Swinburne University of Technology. So tell us about where you grew up as as a child, please, Rebecca, how dark were the skies where you lived? And tell us a little about your school days and how you became interested in science and space and what prompted you to study the sciences? Well, I can tell you that being from a small town, even though it's a university town, Athens, Georgia, probably lended a great deal to my becoming an astronomer because it was very easy to have, you know, these rural sites and just have gorgeous dark skies where I would literally often lie in the back of my dad's Chevy pickup truck (laughs) and just look up into the stars and look for, you know, meteors streaking across the sky look for the planets and the constellations and learn how to map out all the constellations. And so just having that access to a gorgeous dark sky certainly instilled the sense of wonderment into me and made me really think about the fact that what is this that's out there? You know, what is space and how do we all fit into this giant picture? And, you know, so I've always been keen to learn. I just enjoy learning. I enjoy, you know, watching programs on television about the latest scientific discoveries, the history, you know, of our people and understanding more about just how everything works. And so just having that sense of curiosity, but also being very stubborn and motivated to solve any problem that comes to me. 
I was encouraged from a very early age to figure things out on my own. And that included, you know, basically getting no assistance on tying my shoes. I had to figure that one out for myself. But that also gave me a sense of confidence that I could really solve any problem. And so combined with that thirst for knowledge and uh, desire to solve problems and be creative, very early on in school, I decided, you know, for a school science fair project to do a project on the effects of asteroid impacts, you know, realizing that the poor dinosaurs, it had been just recently confirmed then, that were likely wiped out by a giant asteroid or comet. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, what about us? What would happen if another and tried to understand more about that. And that was it, you know, starting year six, year seven. I was also lucky I got to go to Hawaii and visit the Keck telescopes. I got to go inside. And so I got to see the instrument that astronomers use to study the cosmos. And then I also got to do my own experiment and study the effects of asteroids. And so from then on, it was easy. I, I'm very unique. I, under, I understand and appreciate this. But from a very early age, I knew that it was going to be astronomy for me. And so I just, you know, had the bit in my mouth and just continued to tirelessly, you know, continue to study everything I could related to astronomy. And that, of course included obtaining my credentials and taking my education to the highest degree possible. Fantastic. Well, let's go there. Can you tell us about your first degree and then what you specialised in for your master's degree? Yes. Studying at the University of Georgia was an amazing experience because I was now building on the foundation of all the math and sciences I and physics, you know, calculus, all of this, these subjects I took in high school. But now I had the freedom to use those tools to study things I was really interested in. It wasn't just about general physics. It was about astrophysics of stars and understanding how light is collected in a telescope. So that, you know, really opened my eyes to how I could use these tools I developed in high school and to then be able to learn more about the physics of the universe and just have all of these, you know, windows opened up to be able to really see how everything fit together and see the underlying physics in everyday activities. But I also had the opportunity, you know, the first real opportunity to do outreach at the University of Georgia. And I realized not only do I enjoy learning, but I enjoy talking about what I've learned. And I enjoy sharing my wonderment of the universe with others. And so I got to take on the roof of the, the University of the Physics Building, we would have astronomy open houses. And so I would take 10, 8, 12-inch Dobsonians, set them up and help guide people to check out you know, the latest and greatest what was up, whether it was Venus, planets, um, and just looking at perhaps Orion Nebula. Yep. Um, and so, you know, getting to see that side of space and share that with other people is what made undergraduate really special. But then, you know, going on to a master's degree, this is where things really, you know, became challenging because up until this point, it was like you work hard, you'll get good grades, and it's all about just putting in the time. And I had a little bit of a foreshadowing of this in university when I didn't make the best grades in my math classes. And I had to appreciate that even making a C was okay. That was average. It means I did well, but it was still challenging. And then, you know, in a master's degree, I can say that those physics courses really kicked my butt. And it taught me that there was so much beyond the basic foundation of science and that there were really complicated subjects 
and the amount of time it took to really understand them. And some of them were extremely difficult. Like electricity and magnetism is not something I don't know if I'll ever be able to fully appreciate or conceptualize. Well, I do appreciate the complexity of it. <laughs> you know, in my mind, I realize here's something that doesn't just come naturally to me to understand. And so I appreciated that that difficult um, those levels of courses and really understanding the physics that goes into understanding the science, the math and physics that you need to make these scientific discoveries. And so I feel like that was what the master's degree taught me was that, you know, to appreciate science and go out and create a research project, you need to understand the physics behind what you're looking for. Yep. So that relationship became really clear to me when I did my master's degree. Okay. Now tell us how you came to move to Australia and why you chose Swinburne for your doctorate. Much culture shock? <laughs> I thought Australia was just going to be the land of surfers and beaches. And <laughs> while a lot of it is, Melbourne, not so much. <laughs> it's yep. a little bit colder than I anticipated. But what's really interesting uh, for astronomy, they have this basically job register that comes up. It's called the AAS job register. And I was just kind of thinking about, do I want to do a PhD? Do I want to continue my education? And I got some really good advice, basically saying, saying, okay, building your foundation, you understand the physics behind the research now. But to be able to be a good science communicator and for people to really trust you, you have to know what makes good science and to be able to judge that science. And so that's why I decided to continue on and actually do my doctorate. And I found just really happenstance the opportunity to study in Australia. And I just kind of applied for it. I was like, yeah, sure, why not? What's, the, you know, the worst that can happen? I don't get into the program. And luckily for me, not only did I get into a cool program at Swinburne, but I also got connected to the really great community here. And for me, it was a no-brainer. It was like, oh, do you want a chance to study in Australia and live in a different country for a few years? Yes. <laughs> Australia just always seemed like such an incredible place to me. And the research opportunities that I would be able to undertake were exactly in the field that I wanted to study. And the people here just seemed really, you know, welcoming. And so it was a very easy decision for me. It's a lot of work and effort to move to the other side of the world, but completely worth it. And, you, you know, you make stuff work. Very good, yes. We interviewed Dr. Sarah Madison in an earlier episode there at Swinburne. Then you completed your PhD in astronomy and astrophysics, and your thesis was a comprehensive view of galaxy evolution using galaxy sizes to examine growth rates and environmental effects. Now, can you tell us about the different types of galaxies that you studied and their life cycles? Yes, absolutely. So one thing I will comment on <laughs> when you're doing a PhD, you really become specialized in, in, you know, in one topic and you become an expert at it. But one thing that continues to be hard is to create a title that's less than, you know, 10 words <laughs> because, you know, there's so much that's included in what you study. So I apologize for that really clunky title, but it's comprehensive. <laughs> yep. So what I study is I want to understand how the galaxies in the early universe have evolved into the galaxies that we see today around us in the local universe. And using instruments such as the Hubble Space Telescope, I'm able to look at images of galaxies that existed when the universe was only about a billion years old. 
Now, I know that sounds like a large number, but when you think about it relatively, our universe is over 14 billion years old now. So this was really the early stages. And so to understand how galaxies form and evolve, you need to have basically what we call a kind of a fossil record. You want to have data that spans the entire their entire life cycle. So start from the beginning and go back as far as we can and do a robust study. And so I use the sizes of galaxies because a size of a galaxy is simply telling you the information about the extent of its stars. Yep. Okay, and I use called optical wavelengths. So I'm looking at light from the stars to determine the sizes of galaxies. So I'm looking at their stars and I'm understanding how they're growing that way. Yep. Well, galaxies, you know, we think that they come in basically two main flavors. You have galaxies that are forming stars and you have galaxies which are no longer forming stars. Yep. And through studying their sizes, we've come to the understanding The galaxies that form stars, um, as a function of time, they grow kind of their size in a steady rate and just continue to add on to their sizes by, by creating stars. Well, galaxies that don't form stars anymore are actually very interesting because we found that they grow more rapidly with time. And there's also, uh, there's also a relationship between a galaxy's mass and its size where galaxies that have more mass, they have more stars, are bigger. Yep. So we have to take in, you know, these characteristics, these fundamental characteristics, when we're trying to use sizes to establish, you know, more about the evolution and formation history of galaxies. We've got to be comparing apples to apples. Yep. That's the main thing I consider is, okay, what is a galaxy's star formation properties and what is its mass? Those are the most important qualities when studying galaxies and their evolution. Okay, I had great fun reading your PhD thesis and I noticed in there there's a term there that we need to unravel for our audience and for the uninitiated, can you tell us what is redshift and why is it so important to astronomers? Absolutely. Redshift is an extremely amazing phenomenon where we have figured out as astronomers that, you know, we think of space and we think of this dark void, but really space is just an ocean that we are all embedded in. And as a galaxy star emits light, even that light is embedded in space. Well, there's another incredible phenomenon that was discovered about our universe, and that is the fact that it is expanding with time. Yep. Itself, it is growing, and space is expanding. So as space expands, it literally stretches that light. And so what happens is there's fundamental properties of light. There's frequency, which has to do with the intensity of the light. Yep. And then there's also the wavelength. And the wavelength tells us, you know, frequency and wavelength tells us about the energy of that light. And the longer that wavelength gets stretched, it gets redder because it's losing energy. And so from that property, we can actually trace backwards and understand about how long it must have taken that light to reach us, therefore understanding how far away the galaxy is. And so it's extremely important for understanding the evolution of the universe, even understanding, you know, early on in history of of astronomy, that there were other galaxies, that there was such a thing as other galaxies, and that it's not all these, you know, 
island universes, but in fact, we live in a, a galaxy and that there's light that's coming from stars and other galaxies. So this property of redshift is crucial for understanding distances and also at what time that light was emitted in the universe. Fantastic. So in your research, you focused on high redshift galaxies. Can you tell us about the Lyman Brake galaxies that you studied? Yes, absolutely. Lyman Brake galaxies are a very special sample of galaxies. Lyman Brake galaxies have young stars which are emitting photons or light at a very specific wavelength. Now, the gas that's in, also inside these galaxies really likes to absorb that light at that specific wavelength. Yep. And so when we look at the spectrum or the entire energy distribution of that galaxy, we can see exactly what it's made of. And what's interesting is at wavelengths right around at those young stars, we see what's called a break. Yep. And that means that the gas is just absorbing all of those photons. Well, this is a really important feature because we know, like I said earlier, it happens at a specific wavelength. And if we know what that wavelength is, we can tell exactly at what redshift those galaxies are by looking for that feature. So this is one of the first ways that very high redshift galaxies were discovered because it's very challenging to locate galaxies in the distant universe because they become fainter. And so understanding where they are existing in time becomes a crucial you know, mystery to solve. And so if we know about the specific feature of the galaxy spectrum, we can then use that to identify where the galaxy is, but it also makes it possible to find that galaxy because you can use what's called a color-color selection. So you have different what we call filters, and filters essentially they let in wavelength of light in very specific ranges. And so what happens is as a galaxy spectrum is redshifted, so is that feature, that line and break feature. So what happens is that you literally see it, in one filter, and then it disappears as you go to lower wavelengths. And so that's how it's identified to begin with. And where which filter you see it in tells you the redshift. And so then you know, okay, we found what we call, you know, redshift seven Lyman break galaxies, which existed, you know, when the universe was less than a billion years old. And so this is really important for just identifying, you know, these primordial, these early galaxies. However, the way that they're selected actually creates what we call a bias because we know that they're very bright in what we call UV wavelengths because yep. they're forming these hot young stars. But the question is, are all of the galaxies that existed so early on in the universe, are they all like that? And so to understand, you know, more about the general population of galaxies at that period of time, I constructed what's called a mass complete sample. Yep. And so that essentially tells us for certain brightnesses of galaxies, you're getting a range in masses. You're not just getting the brightest, most massive galaxies or the, the faintest low mass galaxies. You're getting a mixture. And so that helps us understand are all galaxies at that time bright and, and small or, or is there a, a variety of them? Just like, you know, we have with people, there's a variety of different kinds of people. Why wouldn't galaxies be the same way? 
And so that's one thing that's very interesting is to understand, you know, as technology advances and as our techniques advance and we become creative with our technology, we're able to then, you know, study more and more to try to understand. Yes, are we seeing that Lyman break galaxies? They're not just very bright. They mark the majority of the life, the early life stages of most galaxies. So that's, you know, an important question to address when it comes to fundamental galaxy evolution. And so I was able to use, you know, the sizes of these star forming galaxies because Lyman break galaxies, not only do they exhibit a very special feature in their spectrum, they're also mostly very compact. We assume galaxies grow with time. Okay, that makes sense. They grow in size with time. But just how small should they be at this point in the universe? So that's what I studied. That was one of the main aspects I studied. And while we have to be very careful when we're making any kind of grand conclusions, it appears that Lyman break galaxies probably do make up the majority of galaxies, you know, in the early universe, but there is some variation. And so not all galaxies that existed in the early universe are these super compact mega star forming galaxies, but there are some, you know, regular guys in there too, so to speak. That's sensational detective work there, Rebecca. (laughs) Now, what technologies and data sources did you use? You mentioned Hubble for your study of galaxy evolution, and you've just mentioned some of your conclusions. What unanswered questions are also associated with your research? So one thing I think is really important to point out is Hubble is amazing for getting what we call high resolution images of data of galaxies. And that's very important for accurately measuring the extent of the light of a galaxy. You, you want a high resolution image of those galaxies. However, like I said earlier, it's important to know where in space and where in time that galaxy existed and what are its star formation properties. And so to obtain all that data, I actually use a very deep ground-based survey called ZForge. And you say, well, we've got Hubble. Why do we need ground-based observations? Well, the reason for that is that Hubble is very popular. And to just point it at one spot in the sky and get as many photons from these distant galaxies as possible is, you know, that's very tricky because a lot of people want to use it. And so you can't say, oh, well, I just want to borrow Hubble for 40 hours and stare at this tiny patch of sky. You're not going to have a lot of luck with that. However, there are many more ground-based telescopes which are capable of doing that. And so you take these amazing, large, what we call eight-meter mirror telescopes, and they can stare at a patch of sky for days and days and days, and they get those distant red and faint photons. And so those can tell us where the galaxy is in space. They can tell us more about the properties of the galaxy we're looking at because we can use different filters now we can look at you know different aspects of the stellar population and so that's you know the other side of the coin so you've got the high resolution images but you've also got information now about the mass what kind of stars is it forming stars so i need both of those you know elements to be able to to do what we call complete analysis and besides just the general size growth of star forming galaxies i've always been very interested in environment Now, in the local universe, we see these incredible, what we call clusters of galaxies, where you have many, 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 many galaxies and not so great a space. (laughs) Side note here, space (laughs) is big. So when I say small space, it's still 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers across, you know, millions of kilometers. And so it's still a great space, but cosmically speaking, it's a little bit more compact. What's interesting about these compact environments is that we don't see very many, if any, star-forming galaxies, especially in the cores of these clusters. So I was very fascinated with this and understanding, you know, what is the relationship between galaxy evolution and environment? So again, I, I looked at the earlier universe and looked at what we call these primordial overdensities where clusters are just beginning to form to understand how that affects galaxy evolution. And I used, again, the sizes of galaxies because the idea is that if a galaxy's growth is being either accelerated or dampened by environment, perhaps we'll notice a difference in the sizes of galaxies that exist in the clusters and in the field. And so this is, you know, one of, to me, one of the best learning experiences because you say, you know, I've got this question. I'm going to figure this question out. I'm going to address it and I'm going to win the Nobel Prize. You know, I'm going to solve it. (laughs) And what you realize is that not only do you not answer the question completely, you pop up about 100 million more questions. Things just become more complex as you look at the problem. And what I found was that, you know, higher redshift when the universe was only a few billion years old, it appeared that the cluster environment was accelerating the growth of star-forming galaxies. They're larger in size than the field galaxies. However, for the galaxies that are already, they've ceased their star formation, the passive galaxies, I noticed no size difference. So this is a very interesting phenomenon because in the local universe, they're mostly these passive red and dead galaxies and clusters. And so you would think that there would be some direct correlation. But what I saw was actually that the star-forming galaxies showed interesting properties, interesting differences in their sizes. So I'm scratching my head and, you know, of course, all passive galaxies have to be star-forming at one point. So then I'm realizing, well, maybe the interesting thing to study here isn't the passive galaxies. It's the star-forming galaxies. So I looked then at lower redshift or closer to now, closer to the local universe. And what I found was actually the opposite. Star-forming galaxies that were in the dense cores of these, again, proto-clusters, they're smaller in size than the ones we find in the field. Perhaps now I'm starting to identify an epoch when this, at least this type of environment that I looked at is affecting the growth mechanisms of these galaxies. Perhaps it's galaxies are interacting as they're closer together and they're over less amount of time, they're cycling through this dense area. And so perhaps as galaxy-galaxy interactions are ripping gas away, are ripping stars away, are are ceasing the ability for those galaxies. They're quenching them, um, which means they're going to stop forming stars in the future. So it's a very interesting result to obtain. But the idea is that you need many more studies looking just specifically at star-forming galaxies, making sure you're looking at star-forming galaxies across the spectrum of sizes and masses to really understand if there's any correlation you know, or causation that you can determine. And so that's an aspect where this hasn't been studied very much at all, looking at the star-forming galaxies. Everybody cares about the end product. They care about the passive galaxies. So there's much more work to be done in this area. And to really understand, does environment actually stop star-forming galaxies and turn them into these passive galaxies? Or is just that just the natural cycle of galaxies is that, you know, one day they're going to stop forming stars. 
So is it special that they're in a more dense environment? Can we really, you know, select those processes? Can we identify them? And so that's something which is a completely unanswered question. And I'm sure will be something that will be much more studied and, you know, go into a lot more detail, especially with the upcoming James Webb Space Telescope. We'll be able to look at, you know, high resolution images, these proto clusters, and really try to understand the structures of the galaxies and what we call their morphologies and understand how environment might be affecting that and how, what role that plays in the star formation capabilities of these galaxies. That is sensational. It sounds like you're playing chess on a cosmic chessboard. It's awesome. So let's talk about your current outreach role and your continuing research. What does your working week look like, Rebecca, and how's it all going in these two areas? I've always been very passionate about outreach. And while I discovered through doing my PhD how much I really love doing research, I get to tackle those hard questions and problems and be creative and coming up with solutions, I really feel that Science literacy is an important thing in, in education and giving people, it's not just about creating a bunch of other astronomers like me, it's about giving people opportunities and giving the next generation the opportunities that I have been so fortunate to have myself. I feel very strongly that having a background in not just science, but in mathematics and critical thinking and an understanding the relationship behind being very creative and open-minded and how that can help you with problem solving can help you in any aspect, no matter what you decide to do with your life. And so when I heard that there was an opportunity at Swinburne to help with school engagement in, in the fields of not just, you know, astronomy, but across different sciences they have here at Swinburne, including engineering and technology, I jumped on it. Yep. Um, because every, you know, we think of projects and people think, of, you know, they have this idea of what they think a scientist is. And I feel like most of that is misconception. And, you know, we think about, well, how can science, you know, or, or STEM subjects, so to speak, uh, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, how is that applicable to my future? And you look at the world we live in today, and it is so dominated by technology that all of these skills, whether it's just being a little bit computer savvy, knowing how to write a program, understanding what your computer does, these aspects are becoming more and more important. And so I look at my outreach role at Swinburne is going to, to school students of all ages and kind of showing them how cool what I do is, but also the opportunities that it has given me in my life and how I can look at the world in a different way. And so what I do at Swinburne is I help connect local secondary schools with the awesome scientists and also PhD students at Swinburne in all different fields so that they can get an exposure, understand you know what it is to do these roles as a career and what it takes. And part of one of the projects I'm working on is called SHINE, and we're working with a local high school. And basically what they're doing is they're working with Swinburne University students and they're designing, building and programming their very own experiment to study the effects of microgravity that will be sent to the International Space Station early next year. Wow. So, yeah. So these kids are getting it's, it's so amazing to me. Because just to under, appreciate all of the minute details that go into creating 
and experiment for space and all of the incredible aspects you can look at. And the fact that these students are getting an opportunity to do an experiment for microgravity that not even NASA scientists you know, have priority to do. And so it's an amazing opportunity for these students to understand all this cool, you know, stuff that goes into science, but also to get to do their own experiment, to get to understand what it is to be a scientist. And so it's an invaluable experiment that I'm really happy and excited to be a part of. That's sensational. CubeSats are really going out of this world. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, The iconic Cassini spacecraft has just been deliberately crashed into Saturn. Why was this? Well, they decided to crash it into Saturn itself. A, because there's a lot you can learn as a space probe plummets through the atmosphere of a gas giant, but also because they were afraid that there could be an unintentional impact with one of Saturn's moons, especially Titan or Enclitus, where we think that there might be life underneath the surface of these oceans or methane lakes. And so there's the, the issue of contamination. So the idea is that, A, you, you stop contamination of possible microbial life on these moons, and B, you get to learn a lot more of the intimate details of Saturn's atmosphere as you're crashing through it. Fantastic. Thank you, Rebecca. Now, the mic is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science and outreach, in women in STEM, in education, in radio and optical astronomy, gravity waves, big data, or AI. (laughs) Give us your rave, please, Rebecca. Absolutely. So I feel like the the field of astronomy and, and understanding our cosmos is not only important for us to understand our place in the universe, but it's important for enriching our lives. And I feel very strongly that science is given a bad name. People don't trust it. People don't appreciate it. And really what they're missing is that this is a way to, to enhance your view of the world. It's not taking anything away from you. And related to that, you know, women in STEM and unfortunately, the fact that there are people that are just chomping at the bit, so excited to study all of these fields, but they're being discouraged simply because they don't look like what people imagine a scientist should look like or act like. To me, I feel like that is uh, extremely unfortunate and short-sighted. Everybody is unique and special and different. And it's our differences which allow us to look at the same problem from many different sides and to create new science that's not just going down the same old pathway, but that's expanding and moving beyond it. And I think it's crucial that if we want to include more diverse people in STEM subjects, that they have examples, that they have mentors they look up to. Now, I'm very fortunate because I've had a lot of strong male figures in my life which have been supportive of me and have encouraged me when I've been down and who I just look up to who I think are amazing. However, I think this very important if we want to encourage you know, women in STEM and other diverse people to be in STEM, they need examples to look to. And so that includes having people who are science communicators that look like them, yep. that come from similar backgrounds as them. And so I think once we have that, but we need more. We need more people that are from diverse backgrounds in science communication. And then we're going to include those people in science in the future, and we're not going to discriminate against them. And that's how science is really going to advance. 
Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Rebecca Allen. It's been fabulous speaking with you. Awesome, Brendan. Thank you so much. Bye, Rebecca. Bye. And now we cross to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it all going? Very well, thanks, Ian. Great to see you're back in Adelaide now. Uh, it's not so great. My, my family's out having fun uh, at the Crumbin Wildlife Sanctuary or up on the York Peninsula. And I'm here in Adelaide working on exams. I'm really excited. Ah, oh, well, someone has to keep the wheels of industry and research and academia turning. <laughs> yeah, and that's apparently me, unfortunately. Never mind. Excellent. Well, Ian Astroblog Musgrave, can you tell us what's up, Doc? What's up in the sky this week? Well, what's up in the sky this week is some things that we've been very used to seeing, which will, by the end of the month, disappear from us. And I'm talking about our friends Jupiter and Venus. To start off with, if you've been watching the evening twilight over the past few weeks, you'll have seen Jupiter and the bright star Pico drawing slowly away from each other as the pair sink into the twilight. Now there's Jupiter still relatively easy to see half an hour after sunset, but speakers are increasingly difficult to see in the twilight glow. As the week goes on, Jupiter will sink further and further into the twilight. And by the end of this week, it'll be a little bit difficult to see unless you've got a fairly clear, uncluttered western horizon so that by the time the sky is relatively dark, Jupiter isn't behind uh, houses or trees or rocks or things like that. If we raise our eyes above the horizon into the western sky, we can see the upside-down question mark that is Scorpio, still in full flight and easily recognisable. In the head of the scorpion is the bright orange star Antares. And if you look upwards from Antares and a bit to your uh, right, you'll see the next brightest object is a, has a golden glow, and that's our friend Saturn. Well, Saturn is quite nice at the moment. You've got about a three-hour window between when the sky becomes fully dark and when Saturn's too close to the horizon for good telescopic viewing. Even though Saturn it will be still reasonably high and is sitting around about midnight, when it gets within about 10 degrees of the horizon, atmospheric murk and the horrible boiling of the atmosphere make viewing rather less interesting. Even in a small telescope, the rings are relatively easily seen. You may need a large telescope to see any details, such as the Cassini division, but the large moon Titan can be easily seen around Saturn, so that's something interesting to watch, while unlike the Galilean moon, where they're constantly moving, forming interesting pattern, Titan's the only large moon around Saturn, and it, it, it just orbits about and doesn't form very interesting patterns. Very good. So that's all that's exciting in the evening sky at the moment. Yep. In the morning sky, our friend Venus, that has been our companion for many months, is sinking lower and lower into the twilight. It's still visible 30 minutes before sunrise and uh, even closer to sunrise uh, than that uh, because it's so bright. So on, it will sink lower and lower into the twilight and soon it will become a bit too close uh, even for a very bright object. One thing that's happening is beginning of this week, or just about when this podcast is going to go out, Venus is becoming very close to Mars. Yep. Now, at the moment, Mars is a little bit too dim to see with the unaided eye, 
although it may be uh, visible in, uh, more visible in the northern hemisphere. But it's, it's relatively easy to see in binoculars. And Venus and Mars have been edging closer together over the past week. And on the 6th, Venus and Mars will be spectacularly close. They'll be less than half a finger width apart. They'll easily uh, fit into a small telescope aperture. We will see the you blinding know, bright Venus as a as a uh, gibbous phase, and the smaller reddish Mars also in gibbous phase. The problem being, of course, because both are so low to the horizon, that uh, you'll need a telescope that can, that can travel down fairly fairly low to the horizon. Not many uh, go-to scopes can do that. Yep. Uh, but if your if your if your scope uh, can point very close to the horizon and you don't have anything large objects, trees, mountains, elephants or anything like that <laughs> in the way, you'll be able to see uh, Venus and Mars spectacularly close. Binoculars are no problem. You'll be able to see the pair, a pair quite close. Mars at the moment is still fairly small, so you may see Mars as a dot. Venus will be probably so bright, you won't, all you'll see is a, a, a dazzling blur in your, uh, in your binoculars, but you should be seeing uh, the dimmer red blur of uh, Mars very close to the blinding white blur of Venus quite easily. Very good. At the moment, moon's slowly uh, waning. Um, by the end of this week, the moon is heading towards its half moon phase. Keep your eye out as the week goes on. The thin crescent moon will start to approach Mars and Venus. And in fact, by the end of the week, you should see a nice lineup of the waning moon, Mars and Venus, uh, close to the horizon again. For people in the northern hemisphere, you'll have a better view than the southern hemisphere. The southern hemisphere, because the ecliptic is quite highly inclined in this season for us, uh, the, the lineup will be, uh, especially Mars and uh, Venus, will be very close to the horizon. But for the northern hemisphere, the lineup's more vertical, so you should see a quite nice progression of planets in the morning sky. Sounds fantastic. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us this week? I do have a tangent for us. Uh, that tangent is the recent discovery of a binary comet. Oh, now. Yeah. If you've been listening to the podcast over the past few uh, episodes, we've been talking about binary asteroids. These are asteroids where you've got two objects of approximately the same size uh, orbiting close together. It, as a much larger example of this phenomenon, uh, Pluto and Charon represent a binary planet, but a proper binary comet where the, the two members of a, a cometary body in orbit around them, each other um, is, well, this is the first time we've seen it. If everyone remembers the Rosetta mission, remember the Rosetta looks like a, a, a rubber duck. Yep. And it's thought that this is because two independent objects that were initially orbiting uh, collided with each other. Uh, at a, at obviously, at a very slow speed, if they collided at any form of speed, the, uh, the objects would have shattered. But slowly orbiting objects colliding by provide the rubber ducky, that's uh, Rosetta, whereas what we've got here is two independently objects which may or may not eventually collide with each other, but are still independent. And there's a fantastic Hubble animation of the two objects uh, rotating and with a brilliant dust tail. And the dust tail um, seems to point in a different direction as the objects uh, rotate, but that's more due to the uh, point of view of the Hubble Space Telescope rather than the direction of the tail. And this, this again, points to the complexity of these 
of the objects we see uh, out in the asteroid belt and beyond. And that's uh, so, some things we think of as simple asteroids turn out to be far more complex of, and very dynamic. Again, if anyone remembers the uh, the close pass of the, uh, the main belt asteroid and NEO a couple of months ago where we found that this uh, asteroid had two small moons orbiting around us. Yep. That was not entirely surprising. But we know that many asteroids have small moons around them, and it's often suspected that comets might have small objects that you orbit around them, although because comets are a lot more volatile, it's thought that if a small bits break off a comet, it rapidly uh, evaporates. Yep. And uh, we've had a number of instances of where comets break up and the fragments of the comet rapidly uh, evaporate. Yep. An, an example, however, where those fragments are much more stable is uh, the Comet 73P, which fragmented a couple of approaches ago and still continues to fragment. But the, uh, the, the, the fragments aren't, aren't, don't orbit each other, but they follow on like a string of curls. And so there are some very long fragments in that train and other far more ephemeral fragments which have evaporated. So to find a binary comet where you've got two almost equal objects rotating around each other is very unusual and very, very interesting. Wow. Well, it's a relatively old discovery. It was discovered back in 2006, oh. but it was only just realised. It's cometary nature was only just realised in uh, 2016. And the full-on data was only just released uh, uh, this month. So the Hubble scientists have been sitting on uh, sitting on the binary nature of the uh, of the object since mid two thousand and sixteen. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. All right. And if you're out watching the morning sky looking for Venus and Mars, keep an eye out for some meteors as well, more cometary debris. But this is the Orionids, and the Orionids peak later on in the month. But from now on, you should start beginning to see a few more meteors in the morning skies from the Orionids. And the Orionids are really easy to find because you've got the constellation of Orion from the Australian point of view, of course, is a saucepan. And from the Northern Hemisphere, it's the Bell of Orion. Yep. But the bright red star Betelgeuse is not very far away from where the Orionids originate. And I'll talk about more about this next week. Fantastic, and There's always something interesting and new up there. And there most certainly is, and it keeps on changing all the time. Wonderful, and Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And uh, for those of you out there getting ready to look at the skies, there's... Just go out, enjoy, and have some fun. Next up, the Astrophys News. First, a report on gravity waves published in Physical Review Letters. A fourth gravity wave has just been detected using a three-detector observation from a binary black hole coalescence. So two black holes collide, and we detect the ripples in space-time as predicted by Einstein. Here's the abstract. The LIGO Scientific Collaboration and the Virgo Collaboration. 
the advanced Virgo detector and the two advanced LIGO detectors coherently observed a transient gravitational wave signal produced by the coalescence of two stellar mass black holes, about 30 stellar masses. The signal was observed with a three detector network. The signal was observed with a three detector network. A wonderful collaboration between the Italian detector and the two American gravitational wave detectors. In related news, the Nobel Prize in Physics has been awarded for the discovery of gravitational waves. This is all over the internet, and today we're quoting from The Guardian. The 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics has been awarded to Rainer Weiss, Barry Barish, and Kip Thorne for their work on the LIGO experiment, which was able to first detect ripples in the fabric of space-time. Three American physicists have won this prize for their first observations. All three scientists had played leading roles in the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO experiment, which in 2015 made the first historic observation of gravitational waves triggered by the violent merger of two black holes a billion light years away. These LIGO detections finally confirmed Einstein's century-old prediction that during cataclysmic events, the fabric of space-time itself can be stretched and squeezed, sending gravitational tremors out across the universe like ripples on a pond. The two LIGO detectors they used were four-kilometre-long perpendicular pipes, one in Hanford, Washington State, the other in Livingston, Louisiana, and are so sensitive that they can spot a distortion of a thousandth of a diameter of an atomic nucleus across a four-kilometre length of the laser beam. Congratulations to this team and the other teams who are investigating the new science of gravitational wave astronomy. In not unrelated news, we should also note that Dame Jocelyn Bell-Burnell has still not been recognised by the Nobel Committee for her groundbreaking work when she discovered pulsars. She played a major role in discovering pulsars. She first detected them and first analysed the data. But the 1974 Nobel Prize was snagged by her male graduate advisor. We at Astrophys and a great many others in the astronomy world believe that Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell deserves her Nobel Prize and the Nobel Committee should do something about this. And they should do it soon. Dr. Burnell is still giving lectures on pulsar astronomy and her recognition by the Nobel Committee is long overdue. Get cracking. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave!